Hello there. Welcome to Smashing the Ceiling, the podcast that showcases the lives of women who've achieved amazing things in their careers, some who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who've just had a really interesting life. I'm your host, Naomi Mella, and each week I'll be sitting down with one woman to hear about the ceilings they've smashed through in their lives. The glass ceiling isn't all about corporate boardrooms, international skyscrapers and towering stilettos. Although don't get me wrong, I love a good high heel. There are women breaking down barriers everywhere, shattering stereotypes and forging their own unique and wonderful career paths. We're here to share their stories with you, to let you know how they got where they are and how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. We're an independent podcast, so if you'd like to support us, please follow, rate and review wherever you listen. Everyone asks you to do this, I know, but it really does make a difference and we'd love it if you could. My first three months there, my manager, who's still a good friend of mine today, pulled me aside. I was really shy. I was a very shy person, which is not a good personality trait to have in retail. (laughs) And so when customers would come in, I would hide. I would like go behind a rack and I'd be like, oh, if I look like I'm folding clothes, nobody will ask me anything. And then it'll look like (laughs) I'm working. And uh, my boss obviously noticed. And then she pulled me aside one day and I'll never forget. It was my three month evaluation. And she said, listen, if you can't start greeting people and getting some sales and upping your numbers and not just doing the task work, I'm going to have to let you go. And I was, I mean, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I love this job. And like, I've never been fired from anywhere. I'm being threatened to be let go. And it just lit a fire within me. And I was like, that is not happening. And I completely changed my tune and stepped out of my comfort zone and started, you know, obviously talking to people is all I had to do. My guest today has gone from shy wallflower to recipient of International Film Awards and a column in Forbes. Gia Wertz is a filmmaker, entrepreneur, podcaster, activist and writer who, like many of our guests, has had a working life with some unexpected twists and turns. Gia had a super successful career in the fashion industry when she first heard the podcast Serial back in 2014. She was moved to do what she could to help Anand Syed, the protagonist of the series, who was sentenced at the age of 17 for the murder of Hei Min Lee, a crime he always denied. Jia became actively involved in Anand's case, and at the same time made the decision to quit her career in fashion and go to film school at the age of 41, having recently given birth to her son. Gia was subsequently inspired to make her first documentary film, Conviction, about the wrongful conviction of Jeffrey Deskovich, which won multiple awards and opened Gia's career up in ways she never expected. Since we recorded this podcast, Anand Syed has been released from prison and the charges against him dropped. Serial has its critics, that's for sure, but there's no doubt that this was a powerful result, largely because of a podcast. Gia spent her early life in Calgary, Alberta, and she started by telling me about life growing up there. So I actually grew up in Calgary, Alberta, in Canada, and then I moved to Toronto for college. And so that's where I lived prior to moving to the States. But in my household, I mean, I started working when I was like 14 years old and 15 years old. Yeah. And have worked since then. I've been a workaholic. My dad is a workaholic. Both of my parents were immigrants from um, Pakistan and they came via, they went to Libya and then they came to Canada and immigrated there. And so I grew up watching them work super hard and they were, you know, 
new to the country. English was their second language and they started businesses. They never rented the very first house they found when they landed in Canada. They just bought it. They were like, we're not going to rent because it's not um, like financially a good idea. I I just watched them uh, work really, really hard, like midnight shifts and, you know, late into the night. And I think that probably got instilled in all of us, me and my two brothers. And so I've worked since uh, forever. (laughs) And I am a workaholic, still am a workaholic. Um, Even in my spare time, I'd rather work than do things like for leisure or whatever. I always kind of have this voice in the back of my head that's like, you're not being productive right now. You could be working on X, Y, Z right now, which, you know, is it healthy or not? That's a debate for sure. (laughs) Um, But that was kind of my um, thoughts around work and, you know, how I grew up. To come from Pakistan to Libya to Canada and be so successful in running multiple businesses. Gia's parents, wow, they sound so entrepreneurial and so adventurous. Yeah, it is. It is very, I mean, sometimes when my parents, um, you know, criticize me for all the things I want to do now, I tell them, you know, you guys in the 70s were like leaving your home country with no job lined up and going across the world. Like you guys were rebellious. Of course, I'm going to be rebellious. <laughs> I have your daughter, you know, uh, but they did everything from um, they were small businesses. Like I'll never forget. They had a, a candy and popcorn concession at a movie theater. And so me and my two brothers were so small, like, I don't even know how old we were, five, six. And we got to, we were always sitting in the back where people couldn't see us. We're just eating ice cream and eating candy and just hanging out back there at all hours. And we thought it was just the best thing ever. Um, but they had that for a while. They had a pizza, a pizza place, a few of them actually. Um, and then my mom went into real estate. She's been in real estate since her whole life still today. This is so cool. And I love hearing stories like this. They landed, they bought a house, they started multiple businesses, just like that. I know, it's so gutsy. (laughs) It is, it is definitely. So Gia went off to Toronto where she started out in the fashion industry. I asked her how she got started and how her career kicked off. Yeah, when I was in um, Calgary, I, I, you know, I got a part time job at a retail store like everybody does when they're in school. And um, I loved it. I thought it was really fun. And I love I've always had a passion for clothing and fashion and, and that kind of stuff. And so I really enjoyed it. I thought, you know, this doesn't feel like work. I'm hanging out with friends, you know, I'm around clothes. And it's it felt like opening stock boxes to me at that age at 17 felt like, you know, Christmas all the time. I was like, look at all these new fantastic clothes. And so at the time, I was like, this doesn't feel like work. I would love to do this for for a job. And I quickly kind of moved up within that company. And the owners were just the greatest businessmen and the greatest people. Um, It was two of them, Randy and Darcy, and they really took me under their wing and showed me how they run their business, took me to buying meetings. And I was so young, but I got this like, you know, taste of what that was like. And so I decided that's what I wanted to do. And so I looked for a program, a college program, and there wasn't one in Alberta where I lived. Uh, The only one in Canada at that time was in Ontario in Toronto. So I moved to Toronto to study fashion management and merchandising, um, which I did there. And then I got um, jobs in the fashion corporate world and stayed in that for um, all together, starting from retail till the end for almost 20 years. It's amazing to have this kind of mentorship at such a young age. The phrase Gia used there, which a lot of us casually do, is they took me under their wing, which is basically providing the most incredible springboard for a 17-year-old. They saw Gia's potential and they nurtured her, which is such a great gift. 
It is. It really is. It was, uh, I mean, it was over five years or six years or so, but they were just so fantastic. And for them to trust, you know, a 20 year old or with their business was, was a huge thing, but I, I love the responsibility. And, you know, it was, I'll, I'll tell you, it was really funny. My first, I don't know, first six months, three, first, it was three months, my first three months there, my manager, who's still a good friend of mine today, pulled me aside. I was really shy. I was a very shy person, which is not a good personality trait to have in retail. <laughs> and so when customers would come in, I would hide. I would like go behind a rack and I'd be like, oh, if I look like I'm folding clothes, nobody will ask me anything. And then it'll look like <laughs> I'm working. And uh, my boss obviously noticed. And then she pulled me aside one day and I'll never forget it. It was my three month evaluation. And she said, listen, if you can't start greeting people and getting some sales and upping your numbers and not just doing the task work, um, I'm gonna have to let you go. And I was, I mean, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I love this job. And like, I've never been fired from anywhere. I'm being threatened to be let go. And it just, you know, lit a fire within me. And I was like, that is not happening. And I completely changed my tune and stepped out of my comfort zone and started, you know, obviously talking to people is all I had to do. <laughs> I started doing it. <laughs> and, um, and from there, that was kind of the beginning Then I got promoted and promoted. And then I ended up working under the, the owners, um, who I mentioned earlier, and they were just fantastic. But that was after, you know, a year or two of me really learning the business and stuff. And once I, once I got in the swing of things, it was, I found it so easy because I'm a people person and I love working with people. And so being in charge of hiring and being in charge of, you know, training, I loved all of that. So it worked out really, really well in the end. <laughs> Gia stayed in fashion for a long time, working for large companies like Sephora, Bebe and others, before eventually founding her own clothing brand, Studio 15. I asked her how this came about and what led to her branching out into entrepreneurship and beyond. So I was still working in the corporate fashion world and after some time, kind of the... Uh, all the corporate speak and all the corporate red tape started to bother me. I mean, that was almost like 16 years in and I started to see like, you know, there's so, so many more things that we could be doing if we could move quicker or if we didn't have to go through five levels of approvals. And so I just eventually got tired of it. And I said, you know, what? I'm going to do this for myself and I'm going to not have these red, this red tape and I'm going to do things all differently. And so I started my own fashion brand called Studio 15, which I still have today. Um, and I started doing it on my own, which I have to say is so much tougher than I thought it would be. <laughs> mm. I thought with all my experience, it would be easy and it's definitely not easy. Um, but yes, I did that. And I, amidst doing that, I had my son and I decided that I didn't have as much time. It, it just took so much time and devotion. It was way more than a full-time job. And so I started doing it kind of less and less more on the side um, as a hobby more than work because I was taking the time off anyways to take care of my son. And um, that's when <laughs> my husband came home one day and said, you got to listen to this podcast. It's called Serial. And it's amazing. And I didn't know what podcasts were at the time. And I wasn't interested in listening. And I said, no. And he was like, well, it's a true crime story, which I've always been very into. And he said, it's also a Pakistani family, which obviously my family is. And that piqued my interest because I had never, ever heard of a true crime story related to our culture. For some reason, um, you know, our upbringing is very like your you listen to your parents and you get good grades and you go on to be a doctor or a lawyer or engineer and you don't sway from that and you don't do anything bad and like this is the path and if you don't stay on this path you're going to make the entire family look bad like there's so much pressure for that so 
I just never really was exposed to any, you know, crimes that involved our culture. And so I was like, what, what is happening here? And of course I told my husband, okay, let's listen to one episode. And I believe at the time there was four episodes released and I listened to the first one over dinner and I was like, oh, play the next one, play the next one. And he played all four. (laughs) And I was like, play the next one. He's like, there's no more. This is it. And I was like, what do you mean? This is it. This can't be it. And he's like, it comes out every Thursday. Um, And so every Thursday I'd be calling him at work. Like, are you coming home on time? Like, I think it aired at six or something. And I was like, I I don't want to wait to hear it. I don't want to see spoilers. Like, I want to hear it together. And I was always like hounding him to get home. Anyways, long story short, I ended up listening to Serial, uh, all of it, and was really incensed by Adnan Syed, the subject of the story, that he was innocent, I thought, and uh, and I still think, and he was in prison. And I thought this is entertainment for everybody, but it was so heartbreaking that this is a real person who's been in prison for you know over a decade at that point in time. Um, and so I started to just kind of think about what I could do in that field to help people who've been wrongfully convicted. And that's what triggered me to kind of leave behind my fashion career and and switch. What a neat segue into the next section of our story. But before we moved on, Gia mentioned that starting her own fashion business was much harder than she ever thought it would be. I wondered how this manifested. Was it the loneliness and isolation as a solo entrepreneur or something else? And how did she grow it to reach both her full potential and that of the company? You know, we're definitely, to answer the second question first, we're definitely not at the fullest potential even today. (laughs) There's so much more work to be done. And I also haven't let it go. Um, I don't want to. I still feel like it can be done. It's just going to take a lot more time and effort than I had initially anticipated. Um, The reason I say it's so much harder is because I had, I mean, looking at anyone going into a new business, I had 16 years of really, you know, pretty high level experience. I had increased sales, millions of dollars for other brands. And so I thought, if I can do this for them, you know, why can't I do it for myself? But what's so much tougher is the environment in which I was doing it in, everything was switching to online. And for you to be found and noticed by new customers online, it's just so much more difficult than when they had brick and mortar stores because you have traffic walking by, people see you, people will talk about it. Um, online, it's so hard to get the traffic actually to you because there's just a sea of options for consumers. And on top of that, if you don't have a lot of money to put into ads to make sure that people see your your company, your brand, um, that that makes it very challenging too. So any kind of organic growth is very tough to get. And so all of those things combined, it was just at a time where everything was shifting from brick and mortar to online. Um, I didn't have huge budgets to put, you know, tons of money into advertising. So all of those things. And then also, you know, when I worked at these corporations, I had huge teams and all these people doing all these things. And I go to a team of three and it's just not going to, you know, it's just not going to happen quickly. It's going to take much, much, much more time. Yeah. And did you start that company kind of from your kitchen table, as it were? Like there was a bootstrap kind of from the ground up? 100% from my apartment. We speak to women with a huge range of careers on this podcast, but it never ceases to amaze me when we talk to entrepreneurs about the early stages of their businesses that they nearly all say the same thing. It's so hard. And Gia was raising her baby son at the same time. It's no wonder so many businesses fail, but the shame around that is so prevalent. A hundred percent. I mean, that's uh, that's why when you ask me, like, you know, 
is it successful? I would say no. <laughs> it's, it's not, you know, I can keep at it to make it successful if I want to devote the time. But you, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I was doing it with shipping and everything from my apartment, you know, so I was the one shipping, I was the one, you know, picking the, the, the items that we'd buy going to the buying meetings. And it's just too much. It's too much for any one person to do. It's just too small of a team hiring people and taking the time to train them. Then you're taking time away from the day to day business that you're running. It was all very, very challenging. And so we've really shifted the business model. Actually, it's a made to order now, which is nice because that's better for the environment. Um, so now when sales come in, it, we, we then produce those products and ship them. So it's much better that way. But we went through lots of ebbs and flows with the business. We partnered with Amazon for some time and they were our fulfillment center. And then we stopped doing that too. So there's been a lot of, ups and downs and, and uh, a lot of learnings, to be honest. <laughs> Gia mentioned that her entry into podcasting, like so many of us, was through Serial. I can still remember the moment a friend, like Gia's husband, said to me, you've got to listen to this podcast. And I can remember being like, what's a podcast? How do I listen to that? And then driving around in the car on my veterinary travels, completely hooked. So many of us listened to Serial and were into podcasts from there on in. But for Gia, it was a little different. Adnan became a part of her life and her work. She picks up the story. Yeah, well, I mean, it seems like the whole world, you know, it seems that way. Although you'd be surprised how many people I still talk to today that don't know who he is and don't know the story, which is shocking to me, too, because I've been in this world since, you know, 2014 now. Um, but yeah, it's it feels like the entire world became advocates for him or the ones that anyways believed in his innocence, which is a little bit split because of the way I think Serial told the story, <laughs> which I, I have a little bit of criticism for, but <laughs> I won't go there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I. I myself, after listening to it, was like, what can I do? And I reached out to Rabia Chowdhury, who was the advocate, who is Anand's biggest advocate. And she's the one who brought the story to Serial. And I emailed her to see how I could help. And I mean, I never heard back. And I'm sure she was inundated with emails. And my email too was like, not a lawyer. I'm not anybody, you know, but I want to help. So if there's anything I can do, let me know. It wasn't a very helpful email because what are you supposed to ask a stranger to do when you're in <laughs> this horrific situation? Um, so I never heard back from her. And then I realized, and maybe my husband said this to me, or I realized on my own that I just didn't need anyone's permission or any a conversation with anyone in order to help. And so I got together with a friend who, funny enough, was not a friend. It was a stranger on Twitter. And I had seen her being an advocate for Adnan on Twitter as well. So I just sent her a DM and said, hey, you don't know me, but I've seen you on Twitter, <laughs> often uh, tweeting the same things I'm tweeting. And I thought maybe we could get together and do something for him. And uh, it turned out, you know, she's had quite a career in New York and she's a singer and she thought I was a crazy person. And so she vetted me online. And luckily I had enough of an online presence from my fashion world that she was like, okay, she's not a psychopath. And so she uh, messaged me back and said, why don't we meet for coffee first? And I said, sure. And so we met for coffee. We hit it off. We're still such great friends today. But I approached her and said, would you want to organize a fundraiser together? Um, knowing from running my business, these are not things you should do alone. I was like, I'm going to do a fundraiser, but I'm not going to do it alone. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, a good partner in crime would be somebody who's as passionate about um, 
about Anand's case as I am, and she seemed to be. And so she said yes after that coffee, and we started planning this fundraiser, and we held a fundraiser in New York. And it was the first, I think it was the first in-person um, fundraiser for Anand, and we ended up raising a few thousand dollars in one night. We had the local acts, and uh, my friend Marion, who I did it with, was performed there as well. And I, since I knew the fashion world, I created the free Adnan t-shirts with my brand because I knew that was something I could do. Um, and we ended up raising a few thousand dollars and donated to the family. But in that process of organizing the fundraiser, we ended up connecting with the family because they heard about it. Um, and uh, at the time, I mean, now there's been huge donations made, but at the time it was, I think, the largest donation made uh, for his legal defense fund. And so they ended up reaching, many of the family members ended up reaching out. And that was, I think, in 2014 or 2015. And since then, um, you know, I've been, they're good friends and they're just the most wonderful people. Um, but then around the world, there's endless stories of people I've met that have went to law school or completely changed their careers all based on listening to a non-story. I mean, I, I single, I personally know at least three or four people that have changed their careers or are lawyers now. One of them works for the Innocence Project now, all people who had completely different careers prior to hearing about a non Serial has now had over 300 million downloads worldwide, but I still find it incredible that one story, albeit one that arguably launched the true crime genre in podcasting, can have such an impact on people across the world that some have turned their entire lives and careers upside down. This shows the power of storytelling. It really is. I mean, it put podcasts on the map for sure. I mean, I agree. (laughs) And uh, true crime too. It really catapulted true crime podcasts, and uh, I think that was around the same time as like making a murder, like the documentary came out. Both all of those things kind of turned true crime into something else. It used to be very different than it is today. We're going to come back to true crime podcasts, but Gia, at the time we're talking about, had a series of big jobs in fashion and a column in Forbes, which she still does. She then flipped the script on a very successful career to go back to school and become a documentary maker. It can seem like a monumental call to walk away from a quote-unquote good career. I know, I've done it. It took me a long time to understand and come to terms with the fact that I might not want to be a vet anymore and build my entire career in that profession. So I asked Gia about her path. Had it been a quick decision or one that had built over time? It's funny enough, I would say both, um, only because it it was easier for me, I think, than the average person. People often ask me, like, how did you do that at 40? Like, you know, at 40, I wish I could do that. It was all it was easier for me because the decisions were made gradually when I got pregnant, you know, and I took time off work. Then I gave up my salary, you know, then I knew that I was going to be staying home. So I wasn't giving up my salary, changing my career, starting a new career, all in this one, you know, one bite. You know, I I gave up my salary and then I was home with my son for a little while. And nine months to a year later, I went to a non's post-conviction hearing. And that's when I was really moved to do something more than, you know, just the fundraiser I had done. And then I decided, oh, let me try film school and I went to film school and I loved it. And that helped me make the decision. Um, And then when I came out of film school, the film I made in school as my final project uh, got picked up at a bunch of film festivals. And so that gave me the confirmation that, you know, this is something that maybe I can do and something I might have a talent for. And so it was really slow, but the decision to do it is, I remember the exact moment I came home from 
Adnan's post-conviction hearing. And I was really incensed by pretty, I mean, I hate to to use such a big word, but the corruption that I saw in the courtroom, I was completely like my blood was boiling. I was just so mad. And I couldn't believe that this is how things work. You know, I thought, God forbid, if one of our family members are in this position, what would we do? It's this, it's you against the world, it feels like. And so I was was really upset. And so I remember the moment that I was there in Baltimore and we were at dinner or lunch with the family and there was a camera crew around and Rabia said, you know, don't say anything because it's not public knowledge yet. Um, but you guys, you see the film crews are around, you might be on camera. So I just want to tell you that they're filming an HBO doc about Adnan, but you know, you can't tell anybody. And that's where I had been for a year, I'd been thinking, what can I do to help people who are in Adnan's position, you know, him or other people. And I didn't know what I could do, because I'm not a lawyer, I knew I didn't want to go to law school. And especially after seeing Adnan's post conviction hearing in person, I was like, I don't want to be the lawyer up against these corrupt lawyers, because I wouldn't have the um, temperament for that. I know myself, and that would not be a good role for me. And so I'd been racking my brain as to what I could do. And Jeff, who my documentary is about, I had even went to uh, coffee with him a couple of times and asked him, I said, you know, for someone who's lived this, what can the average person do to help people that were in your shoes? And we had lots of kind of brainstorming conversations. And I didn't know what I could do. I knew I wanted to, but I didn't know what. But I remember seeing that camera crew and funny enough, I think there was only like two or three people there. It was a camera guy, maybe a producer, maybe a sound person. I'm not sure. I can't even remember if it was two or three. And I remember when Rabia said it's an HBO doc and HBO, in my mind, is so huge as it really is. And I was like, these two people are making an HBO documentary. I was like, oh, I got this. Like, I've been a photographer for 20 years. I know my way around a camera. I'm going to do this. And, you know, little did I know in my naive mind that there's hundreds and hundreds of people behind the scenes. This was just this one little snippet, this one day, you know, this one shot. And uh, I promptly went home and I told my husband, um, like the next day, I was like, I want to go to film school. And he was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) He's like, people, he said, that's a really tough industry to break into, especially at 40, especially with no prior experience. And I said, sure, and maybe I'll never break into it. But you know, I'm home, you know, I'm home with my son, I can take classes, I can try. And he said, by all means, try. He's like, learning a new skill is never going to hurt you. He's like, go learn the new skill, you may be able to use it, you know, wherever else in life. And so I went to school. And that's what started the whole thing. So it was a long drawn out process to switch careers. But it was a really quick decision in that on that day. When you say New York Film School, I hark back in my head to the days of Gossip Girl, the Tisch School of the Arts and a super competitive application process. Gia is really smart, yes, and she'd been a photographer for many years, yes, but she's also a mother and 40 and had no discernible filmmaking experience. What was that like? How did she manage getting started in a whole new industry? So I went to New York Film Academy and the getting in part was not difficult. Once you got there, I mean, it was a crash course in everything. It was it was a lot of information super fast. Um, but I went in with such a goal. Like I knew even from, uh, well, I knew that I was going to make documentaries or tell stories about people who have been silenced unjustly by the by the justice system. And so I had a like a goal in mind. So from the very first day, I, I'll never forget, they give you assignments, you know, it's like day one or whatever, and they give you an assignment, it's to shoot something. And 
I wanted to shoot something that I could eventually use. You know, I was like, my goal is to make a documentary. I want B-roll or footage that I can eventually use. And so the assignment did not fit what I wanted to shoot. So I just went and shot whatever I wanted and submitted it anyways, which wasn't great for my grade for that assignment, but it was great for my end goal. <laughs> and I did everything that way. Like I, that, those are the decisions I made um, in school which were really worked out for me because those were all scenes that I had for my film in the end. And I knew I was like, if I'm here and I have access to all this camera equipment and I have access to this, this crew, cause they gave you a whole crew of other students that would work on with you. So I was like, you know, this is a free film crew for me right now. I mean, free, I paid for the school, but you know, these were all students. And so I just had a very like tunnel vision when it came to what I wanted to do. And so sometimes the assignments weren't great, but you know, the end product was what I needed for, for my end goal. And so that's how I kind of attacked it. Boy, she was laser focused, wasn't she? Love that. The first film that Gia ever made, Conviction, was picked up by a bunch of film festivals and awards, including the Greenwich International Film Festival and the New York Cinematography Awards. I put it to her that this must have been very gratifying and perhaps even a tiny bit of a relief validation perhaps that she'd made a good decision oh it was wonderful it was so wonderful I couldn't even believe it to be honest I was in one of my last classes and it was a uh, post-production class we were editing and one of the instructors who would go around watching everyone's edits um, to give you um, feedback on what to change and what to edit and why he watched my film and he he kind of sat back in his chair after I remember and he was like wow he's like you have to submit this to festivals like he didn't give me much feedback he told me to submit it and I had never been to a festival at that point in time I didn't know how to submit to a festival at that time and so I quickly enrolled in an evening um, extracurricular class that taught you how to submit to film festivals <laughs> and because uh, the school offered it but it was just an extra course that wasn't mandatory um, I took that course and I submitted the film just as he said and. Um, I submitted a little while later, I actually edited some parts and made it a little bit longer and and a little bit better because it had to fit the assignment parameters at the time. So I kind of expanded it slightly and then submitted it. And yeah, I got into, I think, three festivals within the first month. And uh, I was shocked, to be honest. I was completely floored. And then it went on to, you know, get into quite a few. And the funny thing was, it was all during the pandemic. So as I think our, it was our maybe fourth or fifth one we got into, it was our premiere, our first theatrical premiere. And it was going to be in New York at the Anthology Film Archives, which was like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, it's my first film and it's going to play there. I mean, I just felt so excited. Jeff, the subject of my film was so excited. It was going to be the first time he sees it. We were going to be there in person. And I think two weeks before the screening, it uh, the pandemic hit, all the theaters got shut down, everything got shut down. And we never got to attend a single <laughs> oh, festival. Gee. And we got into more than 15 <laughs> and couldn't travel, couldn't get on flights, couldn't. And it was it was so exciting and so heartbreaking at the same time. <laughs> 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 it's like someone just dangled a really big carrot yes, in front of yes, you. Yes, yes, and I was trying to be away. excited because I was like, when do you switch careers at 40 and do something new and the first film you make gets, you know, this much praise and I wanted to enjoy it. And then I was like, oh, woe is me. This is so terrible. <laughs> Why would a pandemic happen at this time? And uh, anyways, the funny thing is, 
it all was meant to work out the way it was meant to work out because being my busy body self that I am, the pandemic was, you know, still going on. It was so a year and a half of just sitting at home. I was like, you know, I'm not going to sit at home and sulk about my film. I instead joined every masterclass I could. Filmmakers all over the world were hosting, um, you know, Zoom calls because they were also, you know, sitting at home doing nothing. And I, got to join so many Zoom calls with so many prominent filmmakers and learned from them directly on these, you know, some fairly small Zoom calls and got to connect with so many of those people. And it was really, really amazing. And as a result of everything I learned there is how I got distribution for my film. And that's how it ended up, you know, on Amazon. And so if it wasn't for that time, who knows where the film would have been now. And in the middle of the whole thing, there was a little lull where the pandemic numbers got better And there was one festival in Atlanta and Jeff and I both flew to it. And it was the only flight we took in the whole two years, only festival we attended. And that was the one where we ended up winning best picture and best cinematography in person. And Jeff was so excited. And for me to watch him, it was kind of like an out-of-body experience. I'll never forget it. I don't like being on stage. I was like, when they called our name, I was like, oh God, I don't want to go up there. Am I going to have to say anything? And Jeff like grabbed my arm and held it up in the air and was waving it around and then rushed up to the stage because he's not shy at all. And uh, and so we were on the stage (laughs) and I was like, oh God, like... I don't have anything to say. What am I going to say? This is insane. And uh, and I remember watching him speak and it was this out-of-body experience. I was so happy. It was like the happiest moment of my life since I started filmmaking because I was seeing this guy who I knew had spent you know almost two decades in prison with no hope whatsoever, jumping up and down on stage and so happy that his story is told and out there. And I that was like just it for me. I was like, this is this is why, you know, I wanted to do this. Gia's film Conviction is amazing and deserves all the accolades it received. If you want to check it out, there are links in the show notes and clips available via her website. Gia had one big transition in her career as she pivoted from fashion business into filmmaking. But during the pandemic, she added another string to her bow, podcasting, and is now the co-host of the wildly successful true crime podcast, Speaking of Crime. I asked her how this came about. Yeah, that actually came about when I was doing um, just press rounds for conviction. And uh, speaking of crime was a podcast that I interviewed on for my film. And at the end of the interview, later that day, actually, in the evening, I got a message from the host and they said, hey, I know you're probably too busy and have too much on your plate. um, But any chance you'd want to co host with us. And, you know, I knew nothing about podcasts, not like literally not a drop. All I knew was, you know, audio recording in real life when I'm making my documentary films. And um, I just said yes, without even thinking about it. I said, absolutely, yes, because I was in the midst of switching careers and my career was in true crime, you know, documentary journalism. And I thought this is exactly what I do. So why not dabble into a new audience that would be exposed to what I do? And so I just said, yes. And they made it really enticing. They said, you don't have to do anything. They said, no audio, no editing, no nothing, just show up and do the interviews and we'll take it from there and we'll do all the production. We'll do all that. And so I couldn't say no. I was like, I can do an hour interview here and there, you know? And so I said, yes. And that very, um, quickly became much, much more than that. And now I write uh, the entire, I do the interviews and then I write in the entire episodes. And then John, the co- my co-host, he does all of the production and the music. And um, it's, it's a fantastic 
team effort, but it is a lot of work. <laughs> in the beginning, our scripts were like 5,000 plus words and I was writing them weekly. So it got really crazy really fast. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? God, 5,000 words a week though. That's a lot. It's one of the biggest misconceptions we find about podcasting. It's way more than just chatting into a microphone and pressing upload, believe me. Gia and John are now deep into a new season of Speaking of Crime, but their first season covered the murder of Gabby Petito, a case that hit the headlines in the States, but received less coverage in Europe. I asked Gia to tell us a little bit about Gabby, and also how, in both the podcast and her filmmaking, she goes about selecting the cases that she knows will make a good story. Um, so I'll tell you about Gabby first. Gabby Petito was a young girl who was um, living um, uh, the van life, you know, and for I think most people know what that is, but it's, you know, people who uh, travel around in their vans and, you know, freely travel and, and live and sleep in their van so that they can it just live a nomadic lifestyle. And because that's such a big thing right now, especially, you know, on Instagram and everywhere else, it's become such a such a thing. Um, there was a lot of eyes on um, Gabby's case when she went missing. She went on this trip with her boyfriend and they were, you know, she was, she was trying to become an influencer and was making these travel videos. She made this one YouTube video and it, it's a great video. And she went missing and it was really here in the States. People were really fascinated with it because they're like, how could this have happened? Where is she? You know? And then her fiance, not her boyfriend, sorry, her fiance uh, returned home to his home in Florida with her van, without her all of a sudden. And she was nowhere to be found and he wasn't talking. And, and it was really, it was really crazy. And we started covering it before it got a lot of coverage. We were intrigued by it because it was this van life. And, and we're like, where is she? How it, it seems so bizarre. How could this happen? It's a seemingly a very happy, lots of photos, videos, you know, this happy trip. And now she's just gone. So that's what um, intrigued us about it. We had a team meeting about what case we should cover. And that was a case that came up multiple times. My co-host's wife mentioned it. I mentioned it. So it was the one that it seemed out of our little group of people kept coming up. So that's why we chose that one, because it seemed like more, it had some some element that seemed interesting to multiple people, which obviously it became over here huge. It was reported on everywhere. But how I find uh, cases typically with conviction, I was really lucky and it all kind of happened organically because when I did the fundraiser for Adnan, um, the woman I organized it with, she said, we should have an expert speak at our fundraiser because neither you or I are experts on wrongful conviction. And I said, that's a great idea. And she just said, I know somebody, I met him at a party and he has a very similar story to Adnan. There was a girl in his class that was murdered in high school and the police pinned it on him and he's innocent, which is, you know, almost the same as Adnan's story. And so right away I said, yes, we should absolutely have him. I mean, he can relate to Adnan and that was Jeff. And so he was the speaker at my fundraiser and that's how I met him. That was the first time I met him. And then we kept in touch over the years. And so we met him and he ended up being the speaker at our fundraiser. That's how I met him. Um, and his story is very similar to Adnan's. He was in high school in Peekskill, New York. He was 16 years old. And a girl that he kind of knew was an acquaintance in school was unfortunately uh, murdered. And Peekskill was a really safe town. So this didn't really happen often. It hadn't actually happened in decades. There was no homicides there. So it was very alarming for the town and everybody. And the police were, you know, determined to solve the case, but they didn't end up solving it. They ended up uh, falsely accusing 
Jeffrey for her murder. And he ended up going to prison for um, 16 years and would have been actually longer, except for that he was able to essentially get himself out, which was really remarkable. So that's Jeff's story. And that's the story that I tell in Conviction. I asked Gia what her hopes and plans were for her future career. She's been a columnist with Forbes, and we've barely even touched on that, had a successful career in fashion, and now she's combining podcasting and documentary making with being a mum to her little boy. It's a lot. It, you know, it is a lot, but it's so, it's a nice because it goes hand in hand. I feel like I can do them, you know, both and, and uh, the skill set is the same. It's just telling different stories in different mediums. But what I really like about it, and I might have said this to you earlier, that with podcasts, I like that you can tell stories in a shorter period of time. It takes less production. It takes less time. It takes less effort. So while I'm working on one film for a whole year or longer, I can tell these other stories through the podcast, you know, one every few months or what have you, which is, which is really nice because you can cover more stories over the same period of time. Um, for, for speaking of crime, we are starting the next season and it's about, uh, it's, it's really interesting. It's about a, another murder that took place in, Illinois. Um, but this one is interesting because rather than being a wrongful conviction, it is the guy who committed the crime actually ended up going free at the very end of the trial in, a, in a, this upset that kind of happened. And it's really interesting to look at how the opposite happens, how a guilty person goes free also because of mistakes made in the justice system. So it's kind of the other side of the coin. That season is out now, so if it sounds interesting to you, go have a listen to Speaking of Crime. And how have you sort of learned the skills? Because you apply really a lot of investigative journalism skills in both your podcast and your documentary. Like your, and obviously your background is in business, and I know you write, you know, you've obviously written a lot over the years, but how have you kind of learned the prerequisite skills for that and really honed those, Gia, to make you... Well, so good at them, I guess. <laughs> That's so nice. Um, you know, I can't. I I haven't, except for I mean, with podcasting, we just I just jumped in and started doing it, kind of learned as we went. Um, with film, of course, everything I learned was at New York Film Academy, and then just immersing yourself in it and and doing it. Um, but other than that, I just. I have I have a real interest in in people and their stories, and I think that's it. I love doing it. That's for sure. Day to day. I love every aspect of it from, you know, conducting the interviews to the camera work to editing the whole process. It's, it's so, it's so much fun. And it seems um, odd to say that. And often when people ask me this question, it seems odd to say it because the subject matter is so dark and sad at times, but the work itself is really really interesting. And then the other nice thing about it is that even though the, the subjects per, or, it's very sad. The people that we always interview and talk to seem very appreciative to get their stories out there. They're very appreciative to, um, you know, have thoughtful interviews and, and talk about these things. Often, I've even had one father whose daughter was murdered say that, you know, it was therapeutic for him to be able to talk to someone on a regular basis and, and just talk through it, um, which was, which was nice. So there's, there's those aspects that make it really rewarding and interesting. Uh, so that, that, that's what I love about it. Mm -hmm. 
that's all for this week. You'll find all the links you need to everything we've discussed in this episode in the show notes that will be sitting right there in front of you on whatever podcast app you use. So do just have a look in there if you want more info or have a sneaky peek at the socials. If you've enjoyed this episode, please just share it wherever you can on your own social media. And if you found the podcast interesting or useful, then please do tell a friend. We're always keen for new listeners. If you can find it in your heart to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or give us a shout out on your socials, then I would love you very much as it helps others to find us. <laughs>